Jacko here from the School of Calisthenics and a special podcast edition today. This is an interview with Dr. Cobb from Z Health Performance. We've done a few things with him before, some Instagram TVs. Um, uh, he's been on the podcast. Fascinating, amazing guys with some fantastic stuff about training the brain in a brain-based approach. Uh, just like there was the podcast we did recently with Scott Robinson, the brain guy, coming at uh, movement and uh, health from a, a neurological point of view. Um, and yeah, it is, it's something that's really struck a chord with me. We're talking about um, how we can train certain aspects of the brain to help with recovery from brain injuries and concussions. You might be like, well, uh, that's not really going to apply to me. One of the fascinating things that he said, even right at the start when he was explaining through this, is the fact that probably about 50% of people, so half of the people, so everyone that's listening to this now, half of you have had probably to some degree, a concussion or a concussion incident at some point in your life. That might doesn't have to be being completely knocked out cold or anything like that. As he explains, it's just you might have just like banged your head when you were playing sport or you banged your head on the table one time or you fell off your bike when you were a kid. And these things can, as Dr. Cobb explains, impact us for years, impact the, how the brain is operating and functioning. The very good news is... Uh, if you can remember, oh yeah, I did bang my head back when I was an older and I went into that thing, or, or when you were drunk, or who knows. But the good news is he gives us three very simple things that we can work on. One is um, to do with the breath and breath holding because we know that there is a, a an impact potentially to change breathing mechanics and breathing patterns from a head injury, but also the effect on our eyes and our vestibular system and our balance system. So some very simple drills he gives us to do. That's the great news and always the great news with, with Z Health and Dr. Cobb from Z Health Performance, that... The advice and things that he gives us to do are all so often very simple, just like looking at your thumb, uh, moving your thumb around, challenging your um, challenge your vestibular uh, ocular reflex, as he explains. He'll go into more detail about that. But simple things, but can have a profound effect on how we feel and how our brain is functioning. Um, I myself, uh, this you know strikes a real chord with me because I wish back in 2013 that I knew Dr. Cobb and had, had, had the chance to get some of this advice because... I had my own head injury, um, a traumatic brain injury back in 2013 from uh, the end of my rugby career. A lot of you will know that story, but you hence hopefully you can appreciate why this was um, one that I was very interested to delve into. And I know that I get messages from people that a lot of people um, have and in similar situations and the way that um, Dr. Cobb put it, that potentially 50% of people have had a concussive, concussive event in their life at some point and that can affect us for years. So hopefully there's something in this view. If you know, if there's a friend or loved one you know has struggled with a head injury or anything like that before, then um, certainly forward this on to them um, and hopefully they can, they can get some help and some advice as, as part of that. Uh, if you haven't followed uh, Z Health uh, on Instagram yet, make sure you follow Z Health and you'll see the amazing works that Dr. Cobb and his team are doing. Um, and I'll put so there'll be some links in the show notes for that. And then the final thing before we jump straight into the uh, into the interview that, that was done over Instagram Live. Um, so if you wanted the visuals, you can click on our Instagram and find it there. Uh, be in, in the Instagram TV. But before we finally, before we get into that, just want to tell you about we're getting ready for Christmas. Hopefully, you're going to have an amazing Christmas. We we pray that you you and your loved ones and family all have a great Christmas um, wherever you are and however restricted and different it may be. Uh, that you can have a beautiful and lovely uh, time um, over this festive period. Um, and if you're starting to think about what's the what's on the horizon for 2021, well, we, if you are 
into or have the goal of or one of your whys and your reasons for training is that you want to you want to enjoy how you move you want to put a little bit of an investment into your physical pension you want to improve your movement and mobility we've got a beginners six week mobility workshop online done via zoom with me and coach georgie where over a six week period we're going to walk with you starting on the 5th of january so that's the first tuesday um, in January and then for six consecutive weeks on Tuesday evenings um, we're going to walk through you a mobility series that's going to take you week by week through different um, elements and different aspects of the body and what's really exciting for us is the fact that we've always done workshops previously as one-offs um, it, whether it's in, in person or whether the workshop has been online it's been like here are the tools let's go through some exercises and teach you the things for you to go away and work on those what we're going to do in this series is we've got six weeks together and we're going to, it's going to be, well, hopefully one great fun, but two, you're going to be able to see a lot of progress and we're going to work and help you through that week on, you know, week by week all the way through the six week process. So we're very excited about that. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes if you're interested in that. There are still places available. All levels and abilities are welcome, but it does start on the 5th of January. And uh, if you are interested, wouldn't want you to miss out. So check that out. There's an early bid offer at the moment. So it's down to only £89 for the whole six weeks. Um, and uh, we look forward to lots of you joining for that and seeing how we can help invest in our physical pension in 2021 and for years to come um, with starting off with the online six-week mobility series with me and Coach G. So check the details out for that if you uh, if you are interested Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy uh, Dr. Cobb and me on Instagram Live. Um, basically, you can have the visuals if you want, but the reality was all the information here is fantastic, and you you don't actually need the visual for this one. You can just listen and follow along. Potentially, if you're really into this, get a notebook out, because you're going to want to make a few notes probably, because he drops some absolute knowledge bombs and gives you, let's say, certainly three areas of things that you can work on very simply with some of his drills. So... I've got nothing else to say other than uh, here is Dr. Cobb on the School of Calisthenics podcast. Thanks again so much for joining. Absolutely. Um, there was one um, one topic that was, um, and I guess it's, it, what we can go through today is obviously going to like touch on, uh, regardless of whether someone's like recovering from like a head injury or something, but just like what things can sort of um, go wrong and what little things can we do to train the brain to be more effective is, is essentially what we're what we're talking about. And you know, last time uh, I tried to do some ideas today because so I was like, I'm we're going live with Dr. Cobbs. I need to remember that I've done some of my ideas. I wear my, my my glasses to try and protect myself from it's like completely pitch black outside now uh, where we are. Um, but yeah, like I myself had a head injury, um, had a seizure on the training field, field playing rugby. Um, and uh, an MRI scan later showed that I'd had a bleed on the brain. Um, I've since made to what I think is a full recovery, but I'm interestingly like seeing some of the research that suggests that if someone's had a traumatic brain injury, their chance of having a some sort of gut dysfunction or, or leaky gut, as they call it, is like if you've had a traumatic brain injury, then you will have had to experience that. Um, and then also just some of the some of the things that can potentially change um, breathing habits from a brain injury, and obviously anything else that uh, anything else that you think is there. That's my own little bit of um, uh, bit of understanding. Glass. I'm just going to put, put a, pin a comment to the top. Oh, 
Okay. I know. I th uh, no, I think the, the, the title is on it. Um, yeah, and so let you uh, let you jump in and roll. All right. <clears throat> so um, I've done a lot of presentations on concussion and, and post-concussion rehabilitation. So what I normally like to start off with is just making sure everyone has a few basic rules. Um, whenever we work with clients, whenever we're teaching our courses, I tell all of our professionals, you should assume 60 to 70% of the people that you work with have had a traumatic brain injury at some point. Really? That high? Concussion. Um, because one of the first mistakes I think that's kind of been communicated and you know, again, I come from the medical industry, so it's, it's our fault. Uh, but for many, many years, people believe that in order to have a traumatic brain injury, you had to have lost consciousness. In other words, you need to be knocked out. And the fact is that we now know that that is not the case whatsoever, right? Uh, anything that jars the head, repetitively jarring the head, playing rugby, playing football, being a kind, uh, being a boxer, being in, in MMA, anything that jars the head with regularity has the potential for creating a traumatic brain injury. That's number one. Um, the other thing that I think that we've kind of done this service around the world in, with regards to this particular issue is telling people you're going to be fine in seven to 10 days, go home, get in the room, turn the lights off, you know, take it easy. Uh, the evidence around what happens with concussion has kind of exploded now, and which is great because I think we know a lot about it. So what I wanted to do, number one, like I said, is just recognize that if you've taken a blow to the head, number one, at some point, could have been very, very mild, but it's a blow to the head. So there are potential for rattling around the brain. Second, I mean, that could just be banging your head at home on the kitchen top or under the door, under the cupboard. Yeah. It's, and again, it's fairly innocuous. I'm yeah. not saying every blow to the head is gonna create a significant brain problem, but it is possible. The second thing that comes into this whenever we talk about traumatic brain injury is a lot of people think that the only way then to have that happen is via a blow to the head. And that's also untrue. Uh, if you think about the brain as you know, a, a, a ball on top of a stick, if you swing the stick quickly, you're gonna get a whipping effect that occur within the central nervous system. So it is very possible to experience concussion-like or traumatic brain injury-like issues post-whiplash. Yeah. Uh, a cervical whiplash, it can be a full body whiplash. Let's say you play in uh, play rugby, you get blindsided, right? Uh, yeah. Someone then hits you from the side and your whole body whips to the side. Because of the dural connections of the brain all the way through the spinal cord, all the way down to the pelvis, anything that kind of whips the body around will also potentially cause you know, minor to significant issues uh, in the brain. So I always like to start off telling people, if you think about brain injury from that perspective and think about your own history, there's a possibility for a lot of people that you've had that occur. Uh, and then we want to start looking kind of at how, what manifests neurologically. <clears throat> so whenever you think about a brain injury, there are kind of three primary stages that occur. And these are actually really important. You don't, you know, none of this has to be memorized. Just trying to give you background on why we're going to choose certain exercises, why we're certain problems that occur as we forward. So normally what happens, you take a blow to the head or you get that whiplash and you get a kind of an immediate injury. Now that injury can, um, it could be bleeding like you described. Uh, yeah. That's fairly common. I always tell people if you get hit in the arm, what happens? Well, you get a bruise eventually. That means yeah. that you're yeah. internally. Same thing happens in the head. Um, but we also will get sometimes like there's little shearing effects of uh, axons. Axons are the, 
uh, with a sheath around that. So we can have tearing of neural tissue, we can have bleeding that can occur. So kind of in that initial wave, what happens neurologically, and this is where it starts to get important, is there's a big burst of activity, right? Huge burst of activity. Um, the way that I would kind of connect that to what happens in the periphery, if you're, you get hit with a bat in the arm, there's gonna be a big burst of activity. Yeah. Area occurred, like all the, the nociceptors, the receptors in the skin, the active very quickly. So that happens in the brain. So there's a big burst. Now the way that brain functions, I always tell people brains need fuel and activation, all right, in order to stay alive. That's yeah. what keeps our brains functioning. And fuel is oxygen and glucose. So whenever we have this big burst of activity, all of a sudden the neurons that are involved in that particular event start to burn through their glucose stores super, super, super fast. So you move into a stage of what's called hypermetabolism. Right. So that, that area of the brain, uh, hypermetabolic, it starts to burn through all the available fuel stores. And the problem that's really occurring there is because our brains are so hard about keeping us alive, is that another thing that happens with this brain injury is we get this big burst of activity, we start burning through fuel, so your brain immediately sets, basically it's a reflexive process that occurs that begins to decrease the amount of blood flowing to the brain. Right. So the second stage is called the hypermetabolic stage, of I'm getting tons of burn of my fuel, but at the same time, I'm starting to experience reduced cerebral blood flow. And reduced cerebral blood flow makes sense in the short term because it's a safety mechanism. Yeah. Problem is now, when we go into the third stage of uh, kind of the typical concussion presentation, you move into what's called the hypometabolic stage, where now we've burned through our available fuel, so the neurons that were uh, injured are now going, hey, uh, I need some help here. And that's coupled with the fact that we have this reduced blood flow. Are we talking minutes, minutes and hours, or no, long again? <laughs> we are potentially talking years. Oh, right, wow. Cerebral blood flow. I was, I was worried, I was worried you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, so, and this, this is, again, one of the big changes that we've seen. Uh, as I said, traditionally, whenever we were, we were taught about concussion, we're like, hey, seven to 10 days, everything will be fine. Yeah. Fuel, your fuel, fuel, fuel supply will restore. So on the glucose side and the oxygen side, it's, it, that, that stuff can heal fairly quickly, right? Our, our bodies are great at taking care of bleeding. They're great at healing different areas. The biggest issue that we have really, uh, I think, for prolonged symptoms, if you want to call it that, yeah. uh, injury, is this reduction in cerebral blood flow. Um, so again, years ago, we thought 10 days, that's enough. But now what we see in the research is that most people will show decreased cerebral blood flow for a minimum of a month. And in fact, there was just a study published looking at cerebral blood flow in division one collegiate athletes in the United States who had suffered um, brain injury. And they found decreased cerebral blood flow two years after the injury. Right. So this is, this is a big topic for us right now on the, on the neurology side of the world, where we're saying, all right, well, a lot of the post-concussion issues that we see, vision problems, balance problems, digestive problems, sleep issues, anxiety issues, whatever you want to put into that yeah. bucket, I'll go through kind of that stuff with you. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the big issues that we're starting to think occurs, is that we have initial brain injury, we have these neuronal issues that occur, we get in this hypometabolic state, and now we have not enough blood flow 
to the brain in order to really help it refuel itself, which delays the healing process and kind of maintains these symptoms over time. Yeah. Uh, so, as I said, whenever we start looking at what do we do about it, this is one of the kind of key key pieces of the puzzle is how do we really start to look at uh, improving cerebral blood flow, particularly to specific areas of the brain, based off what we're seeing in terms of injury. So that's kind of an overview. Would, um, and would, would depending on, so for instance, someone, I can give my own context because it happens to me and, and so I know I've got a little bit of a, yeah, I say context to it. I had a, um, a like a, a bleed and, a, and they could see on the MRI a scar from where that was so they could see about this mark on the brain. Depending on where that was on my brain, would that have affected like, would that have affected it or, because often the, the I guess the immediate um, symptoms are quite um, generic. It's like mm -hmm. sensitivity to light, fatigue, like as you're sleeping all the time, um, emotional, like, you know, depression, that type of thing. And then um, can't concentrate on anything, headaches. Like it took me... It took me about, um, like, I had a, like I had a seizure, which the neurologist described to me as um, when you have that fit, it's like the brain doing a reset, like on your computer hitting control, alt, delete, and just going, right, let's, let's start everything up right. again. Um, but it took me sort of maybe five, six months to get back to a point where I could read a book and sit in front of and watch telly. Like I couldn't just, it couldn't do simple things like that. Um, and it took me a year to be able to run without getting a headache. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, once I was able to run without getting headaches, I sort of started to get to the point of feeling like, okay, I, th I think I've fully recovered now. Like I was always told by the doctors that I'd make a full recovery. That was always the, um, the assumption of the... Yeah. So I guess to, to answer the basic question, does the location of the concussion in the brain yeah. matter in terms of what you're going to experience? Absolutely. So we have basic buckets that we put... Uh, concussion symptoms into, right? Mm -hmm. So there's physical side where we have headache, nausea, dizziness, visually, I'm off balance, right? There's a lot of different things that occur on the physical side. So that's the physical bucket. We then have the uh, emotional bucket. The emotional bucket is kind of widespread, but it is usually in the range of uh, inappropriate feelings, whatever you want to call that. It could be depression, it could be anxiety, um, a lot of times we'll have people who experience significant rage uh, issues. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just, in, in, and one of the things we're always trying to tell people about the brain is that our cool neocortex, which is the more human part of the brain, its primary job is to inhibit our emotional centers. And so whenever the brain has been injured, often we lose our inhibitory capacity. So uh -huh. all of the things that probably would have bothered us a little bit, now become these raging ideas of, oh my gosh, right, my, my life's over, things are terrible. Uh, so we have that, the emotional side. So we have a physical bucket, we have an emotional bucket, we also have a cognitive bucket. Uh, again, depending on what injury occurred, we, like, we see a lot of cognitive issues, memory challenges, uh, the ability to focus on a task so people start to feel like, you know, I can only do five minutes, uh, and that's usually associated with uh, my eyes are killing me, my head's killing me. Um, but again, we have within a, a, within a good assessment of traumatic brain injury, we always have to do cognitive testing as well. Yeah. And the fourth bucket is actually sleep disorders. Uh, because again, typically what we see are, as you were describing, sleeping all the time. Yeah, so 
but then you also have insomnia. So I'm like, I'm tired, I have brain fog, I can't concentrate, I want to sleep, but then when it's nighttime, because I have tonal dysregulation, now I have insomnia at night and I want to sleep all day. So it's, again, it's uh, it can be incredibly problematic for getting back into a normal, kind of normal life. Yeah. Well, you know? it affects everything, doesn't it? Like, and this is the thing why the brain... <laughs> it's your so, brain. Uh, yeah, do you know what I mean? But it does, that's, that's what, that's... But we don't, we... But often when we think about, see, we think about training, we think about function, we sort of like compartmentalize things and we, we forget that the essence that at the heart of it all is the heart of it all, you know what I mean? The, the, the brain, um, of which, by the way, your positioning is exemplary for the, the brain picture behind you. I hope that that's on purpose. If it's not, then it's, you know. I have to talk about this thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's, like I said, whenever you're working with concussion or you're trying to rehabilitate yourself, it actually is very useful to sit down and take a little personal history and yeah. use buckets and write it down and go, okay, physically, what am I experiencing? Emotionally, what am I experiencing? Cognitively. And then sleep-wise, if you start with those four buckets in mind, all of a sudden, something that feels overwhelming, like, how am I ever going to get over this, will start to make more sense because you may not have everything, right, in the, in the physical side. Maybe your biggest issue is it, my eyes bother me when I try to read. I don't get headaches. I don't get nausea. I feel dizzy all the time. But that is, you know, so now we have the uh, emotional side. I'm more prone to X. Cognitively, I'm having trouble with long-term memory. So the, the reason that I like to have people kind of start with these buckets is to start to recognize that different brain areas are impacted uh, by different brain injuries. On the whole, where I normally recommend that people consider starting, however, uh, is related a little bit to brain anatomy. All right, so I'm gonna slide out of the way. Uh, on, on my picture there, yeah. I have blue. The blue is kind of the neocortex. If you look at the colored parts, the reds and oranges, we're now talking about deeper parts of the brain. Talking about the thalamus, and then specifically underneath that, you see what's called the brainstem. Now, the brainstem is composed of three different components. The midbrain is at the top, and the uh, in the middle is the pons, and at the bottom of that is the medulla. Midbrain, pons, medulla. And one of the things that we're seeing and learning is that if we take a cohort, right? We we take a, a thousand people that have had head trauma and we follow them over a couple of years, the question you have to ask is, what are the most persistent symptoms that people show, number one? And then number two, where in the brain those areas or those activities typically lie? Yeah. So the longest lasting problems that we generally see after traumatic brain injury are visual problems and vestibular problems. And yeah. that very specifically to these areas of the brain. A lot of your vision, uh, visual movements of your eyes, the midbrain and the pons. The vestibular system, our balance system, the nuclei for that live in the pons. So we see a lot of issues in those two areas, mm -hmm. uh, probably because of the structure. Whenever we have that whiplash effect, because of the location of this area in the brain, it's prone to being stretched uh, or having neuronal or axonal issues or injuries during, uh, um, yeah, during head trauma. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and that's interesting because not only do those areas deal with the system, the vestibular system, they're also deeply related to breathing. They are deeply related to the control of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So, again, if you're trying to narrow it down and go, okay, what should I do? What should I focus on? I normally start people uh, trying to do a little bit of rehabilitation for the brainstem. And then from there, you start adding in, okay, well, in your case, 
good case injury left frontal lobe what does that do all right well we'll additional tasks yeah. the part i think in the hopeful part what needs to know is that you know, we, we are governed by plasticity, neuroplasticity, which means our brains change based off what we choose to do. Uh, they, they, they change based off stimulus and exercises and, and our environment. So there is a long-term hope always within this that we can improve things. Uh, the, the, sometimes the issue is that the advice we're given is just completely insufficient. You sometimes have to get very focused uh, on solving some of these problems and just recognize that it takes some time. Yeah, I think um, well, one of the things is just like being, having someone talking about it like yourself and explaining it, just even just talking about those different buckets and just understanding where you're at. Because when someone is in that situation um, and speaking from experience, you're just like, you say you're not processing anything correctly, but equally you've got all these questions about. And the main thing is like, when am I going to feel normal again? And even like, just dealing with, even just hearing other people talking about it. And we've come a long, a long, long way. Um, you know, if I think back to, I must have had 10 serious, let's call them serious concussions in my, through a playing career of like over 12 years, that at the beginning, we would just laugh at each other that he couldn't remember. I mean, I remember one guy, like, couldn't one remember, guy. He, he couldn't remember his girlfriend. He thought he, he thought he was going out with his ex-girlfriend. Everyone thought that was hilarious. Because we didn't know the we didn't know the impact of it, and then you know, yeah, seven days, ten days later, or whatever, it's like you feel normal and you go and play again. Yeah. Um, just a couple of things, because I'd like to get into then. Actually, you know, one of the great things about what you guys do in Z Health is going right. Th we know that this part of the brain does this, or this part of the brain might be affected, as you just said, that that, that midbrain and then the middle, and going right. Well, if we can't physically get in there and do anything to it, but we know that if we do, they control the eyes. So if we do some eye drills, it's going to help with that. I just thought that there's just one thing before getting into some of that of just history-wise of like understanding brain injuries in America with the NFL um, big lawsuit back in like it was it was literally it was around the time that I had my head injury, so 2013. I was I was quite lucky at the time that because that was happening. Everyone seemed to like know more about it. It was like this isn't a laughing matter anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, you know, I was of the benefit of of that and getting looked after a little bit differently, probably. Um, but recently, and it's literally just been like this last week in the UK, in England, well, in England, um, the English, uh, the England rugby team won the World Cup in two thousand and three, and some of those players that have you seen in the news, those players are, um, yeah, essentially, it seems like there's going to be a bit of a a lawsuit potentially because of the effects that they're now having and they can't you know there's players that they said they can't even remember winning the world cup so everything that they achieved they can't even like experience and have yeah. memory of um and which this feels like we've gone back to when the nfl is like what how have we not gone through that and you mentioned a number of different like buckets and pots to look at but really when we're doing like assessments for people a lot of the time with doctors pitch side physios it's it's really the it's the cognitive bit the ask, we're asking like do you know what the score is what day of the week it is count back from hundreds in sevens and you know um yeah. i think there's still i guess there's still a long way to go and um it would be do you do any do you get any like consultancy work with like working with governing bodies in sports and things or 
Yeah, I do. And this is, this is, I, on the, on the sports side of things, I can say things are getting better. Uh, talk more about it. Uh, a lot of rules are being put into play in different leagues around the world to uh, pull players out if they've had a head injury. So we're becoming more aware of it. The problem that you run into is exactly what you said, which is the diagnostic capacity for, for concussion does not exist. You were very rare in what you said, that you had a concussion and they were able to actually see a result of that on a MRI or a, or a CT scan. The vast majority of traumatic brain injuries, if we take a picture of your brain, nothing shows up. And this is what drives doctors crazy. It's what drives athletes, teachers, whatever, because almost all the diagnostic capacity really comes down to, does the person doing the exam know what to look for? And are there standardized tests that we can apply that show, yes, you have visual problems, the problems, et cetera. That is all happening. There is, uh, for those of you that are listening that are kind of into this, uh, and you work with people, one of the uh, screening tools that's now in, in play is called VOMS, uh, V-O-M-S, Vestibulo-Oculomotor Screening. Uh, and it goes through and says, well, we're going to do eye movements, we're going to do some head movements, we're going to see as you do those, do, do you get dizzy, do you get a headache, does it make you nauseous? That's a step in the right direction for athletes and for people that are involved in this field to go, all right, we, we're getting some quantifiable data uh, that say, when we see this, this probably means X for the client. There's a, a university of, I think in Miami, in the, in the States, they are working on a blood test that hopefully will be able to pick up some of the, um, in our, what we basically we call markers for traumatic brain injury. Yeah. Hasn't been approved yet, still a lot to be done with that. So right now, this, is, this has been one of the big issues. And a lot of it now, whoever the team doctor is or the trainer to make an immediate on field assessment. You're okay. You're not okay. Yeah. I watched a lot of premiership soccer uh, list last weekend. I saw a guy take a shot to the head and it was obvious, right? He yeah. stood he's moving around. His eyes are all over the place. They did a quick two minute screen and he went back in. And I actually was sitting there watching the TV thinking that poor guy is, is in trouble. Yeah. You're vulnerable, um, right? Yeah. yeah. So it, Still happening. Like I said, my background is fighting. I work with fighters, MMA, boxers. Uh, I fought myself, and part of the structure of that entire sport is getting head to head with some clarity. So uh, we need more and more education around this. We need to have education for the for the athlete, uh, for the we need education for the practitioner, uh, and more importantly, we need to really start to figure out what the heck do we do about this um, because rest and just hope for healing actually in most cases is not the best approach uh so i don't know what i'm just looking at our time we have a, a, about a half hour left so yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of some of the ideas yeah yeah so we could be kind of practical yeah um, so there are a couple of uh actually before I, I start diving into some of the exercise ideas and concepts let me address just a couple of other things that you'll see with concussion and if anyone has any questions, feel, there's a few coming in. If anyone has any questions, feel free to, to put them in the comments and we'll, we'll, we'll get to those. Um, for sure. So what I want to mention first, and this is important because I'm sure some people listening have kids, kids that play sports. Um, we've become more aware, and it was just a big paper published on this last year. Um, with, with a traumatic brain injury, particularly a more severe one, but we're seeing it even with like sport concussion, 
there is a strong possibility of endocrine dysregulation. All right, so most people have heard of human growth hormone. So when you actually look at uh, post-concussion testing, there is a, depending on the paper you read, there are a lot of uh, children and adults, depending on ages and depending on the type of head injury, that will have a dramatic decrease in growth hormone production after a head injury. Mm. Uh, this is important to know. Um, there was a case not too long ago, 14-year-old boy, soccer player, gets hit in the head, uh, had a concussion. It wasn't terrible. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, um, so bad that he was basically out of, out of life for a while, but it was a couple of months for him to go through rehab. Right. But what I noticed was that after that concussion, as he was starting to come out of the, the basic headache, etc., they watched him, and over the next six months, he stopped growing. They went in. Uh, they started doing blood tests on him, and they figured out that his pituitary gland had basically stopped secreting growth hormone completely after the injury. Uh, so they, he wanted to have growth hormone injections in to restore his growth rate. Now, that's been talked about in children. We are now starting to also see that in adults. So a lot of people will have a head injury, and as a result of that head injury, they start to feel like, well, I'm gaining weight, I'm losing muscle, I'm having all this stuff happen because I'm not able to exercise. Yeah, but you may also be suffering some degree of endocrine dysregulation. So there's, there's growth hormone issues. There's also adrenal issues. Uh, we will sometimes see significant loss of, of uh, what are called corticosteroid uh, production as well. So a lot of the things that, that the fitness world, the general movement world kind of talks about, the alternative medical world talks about, uh, these are all things that are directly related to injury that we sometimes see uh, in the brain. So I want to make sure people know that if you've had a brain injury, your kids have had a brain injury, and you you need to be watching. Like, yeah. hey, you know, John was was seemingly normal, and now all of a sudden he's small compared to his peers. Oh, he had that head injury six months ago. Yeah. It might be worth consulting with a specialist to say, can we check this out? So I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, so there's the, there's the hormonal side. Um, there are a couple of things to recognize as well. There are gender differences. Uh, very often females will suffer longer and more intense symptoms uh, post-injury. Now, in the research, we don't know if simply because of the kind of societal programming that they're more willing to say, yeah, I have headaches and I have nausea, um, or if there's something mechanical. We don't know for sure. The supposition right now is that females suffer a head injury may have longer, uh, longer standing issues simply because of a uh, smaller amount of neck mass, neck musculature mm -hmm. to, to protect the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, again, just being very practical, uh, that's pretty well known and something that you see. The third thing I'll mention is on the prevention side. Um, one of the key things we're starting to see as well is the prehistory. So if you have, if you have, and this is the simple part, if you have a history of motion sickness, and then you have a brain injury, statistically, you are more likely to suffer long-term problems with your eyes and your inner ear. Uh, so again, we're we're there's there's a grouping of different things we're starting to look at that maybe are an indicator. And the way that we look at that is from a prevention standpoint, right? Any client that I, I work with, I'm going to ask. Do you have a history of brain of, uh, of motion sickness? Because I'm already interested in their eyes and their vestibular. Uh, but it's something that you want to know so that if that is you, if that is in your history, then a part of your regular training should be making sure that your eyes, your inner ear are actually functioning pretty well. 
uh, we're trying to reduce any uh, poor outcomes should you experience a brain injury at some point. Yeah. But I want to make sure I covered those those few things. I think those are important to know. Now, on the on the uh, what do I do about it side of things? Yeah. Here's where I normally start. I normally start with breathing. All right, and I'm going to explain why I like to start with breathing first and foremost. So we talked about this kind of this brain picture up here, and I said that whenever we whip the brain around, the areas that we're interested in primarily are the brainstem, yeah. on the top midbrain, then the pons, and then the medulla. Well, the midbrain, in terms of breathing, the midbrain is in charge of kind of monitoring what's going on with breathing, and it helps prepare us for having um, uh, basically air hunger, right, for being out of breath. So there's a part of the midbrain that if, let's say I'm out for a run, right, and I'm, I'm jogging along and I decide, okay, for the next 50 meters, I'm going to sprint. The decision that you make to sprint, your midbrain will immediately start preparing itself to go, okay, we're going to be a little starved for air here. Right. And then there's another part of the midbrain that becomes more active as we're experiencing that air hunger. Now, why that is really important in the uh, concussion rehab world is you have to go all the way back remember the problems that we suffer is a decrease in cerebral blood flow right mm -hmm. so we need to figure out ways to increase blood flow to the brain so uh, I'll just kind of put this in, into a little package so hopefully so imagine that my brain has been as a result of that injury I now losing my my uh, very precise Acid to monitor what's going on with my breathing. Yeah. One. And number two, because that area of the midbrain is associated with fear responses, I become more fearful of being out of breath. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Now, why, why that's really important is that will often trigger over breathing, hyper, right? So I'm sitting around, I'm watching TV, and for whatever reason, I'm breathing too fast for my current activity level. What most people don't know about overbreathing is that overbreathing does this to the blood vessels in your brain. It constricts them. So whenever I am in a hyperventilated state, I am causing a decreased cerebral blood flow that is coupled with the already decreased cerebral blood flow yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with a brain injury. So from that perspective, one of the things I really like to get people focused on in the beginning is we need to work on your breathing in whatever way that we can. But I particularly like to get people focused on long exhalation focused breathing and breath holds, right? So if you're taking notes, you wanna go, okay, what the heck do I actually do? Yeah. Exhalation focused breathing and air uh, and breath holds. Both of those exercises are gonna do good things for the brain, right? If I do a long exhalation uh, and I'm, I'm paying attention to it, that's going to decrease the amount of air that I'm taking in. So that's going to my over breathing, number one. Yeah. Uh, the breath holds themselves will magnify that in both of these are going to be sending signals to that midbrain area to say, listen, we need to get well. Yeah. Um, we're we're going to be experiencing air hunger. Uh, so there's obviously, you can, you can do all that seated, right? You can just sit in your chair, do two second inhale, six to eight second exhale, and do that a lot. Part of concussion rehab is volume. You have to do volume of work uh, basically to tolerance. So very often when I'm teaching people breathing for the first time, I'll go, look, you're normal, nothing's really wrong with you. We're just trying to change your breathing pattern. 
do about five minutes twice a day. If you have a brain injury, I'm going to be trying to get you to do breathing probably 30 to 45 minutes a day. Yeah. So we're going to extend that time frame, extend that volume out. But you need to make it comfortable and you need to make it doable uh, because sometimes it's hard to remember what you're supposed to do anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, so well, that's, that's great in that, you know, for breathing is something that's um, coming up a lot um, and whether someone's had a, a head injury or not, the, the notion of being stuck in a bit of an over-breathing pattern because we're a bit too stressed. There's, there's other things that can cause us to be in that. And the, those two really simple things you've said there, like you're gonna, I always say to people, you're gonna be breathing anyway. So bring some awareness to it and think right. about how you're doing it. Um, I, I've just recently um, done the, the advanced instructor training with Oxygen Advantage. Again, right, um, so um, yeah, learn like what, yeah, well into like I'm, I'm the lunatic walking up and down my road with, with my nose breath okay. holding my nose and people going what are you doing um but cool. yeah it makes a massive difference when you're and that's what I guess there's I've been wondering a bit of have my breathing patterns and habits and my CO2 tolerance with breath holding always been bad because I was one of the fittest guys in our team like from a from a from a fitness point of view when I was playing rugby or actually was my head injury something that change that and it's something that i'm having to work with i don't i'll never know but um there's an encouragement for people anyone i was talking to someone earlier just asking about what type of um breathing should i be doing to to relax and sort of de-stress and, and get rid of some tension you know those slowing those exhales exactly what he said and sometimes it's like is it that simple and it's like to a degree it to a degree it is some, and, and this is the issue with, with concussion. Sometimes it is that simple. Sometimes it's not. That's why you have a lot of ideas, right? You had to test things. Um, this is what drives the medical profession crazy as well. There's no protocol. Yeah. Like we have, we have return to play guidelines, return to play guidelines. We have all these ideas about how do you kind of get back into life, but they don't always work for everyone. Uh, and because brain injuries can happen in a lot of different ways and the brain injury is stacked on top of how your brain was already functioning. Yeah. which makes it very complex to have one protocol. But if there is a starting point, breathing is a fantastic place to start. Um, my, my suspicion would be, in your particular case, uh, that the brain dissipated the breathing. If you were very fit, you had a great cardiovascular response to exercise, the yeah. likelihood is that the brain injury and all the things associated with it began to alter your breathing patterns. Uh, and so now you're, you're going through that rehab process, which is exactly what everyone has to do. So we do, again, the long exhalation breathing, and I don't want to ignore the idea of the air hunger. All right, a lot of people, when they first get into it, it's very easy to sit there and do two-second in, six-second, eight-second exhale, whatever. Moving into the breath hold is the next step. It's like adding weight to your, your, your bell or throwing a vest on to do a pull-up, yeah. right? We want to now start to challenge you a little bit more. So now you start to do some apnea work where you're doing longer and longer breath holds. The third step then is to start doing that, those breathing patterns and breath holds with activity. Yeah. Walking, uh, whatever you can comfortably do. Yeah. Because we need to ensure that we are increasing aerobic capacity, right? So we want to link the breathing uh, as quickly as we can into doing low, kind of low intensity aerobic activity. We want the heart pumping harder. We want to make sure that we're getting uh, improvement in that cerebral blood flow. So those are going to be key things. Yeah. Now, the next step or next suggestion I would typically make within all of this is whenever 
go back to that midbrain area. We ask ourselves, well, what else does it do? It's involved in eye movements. Just so, just quickly on the um, on the breath holes. Yeah. How long are you are you recommending for those types of things? Obviously, it depends on where people start. It, it it basically goes to tolerance. Um, what I normally tell people is you you start off with fifteen to twenty seconds, thirty, forty seconds. You just build up over time. Um, I think that anyone that does any regular breath work and who is generally fit. Um, you should be able to comfortably hold your breath for 90 seconds to 120 seconds, um, which for a lot of people, the first time they try that, they're like, there's no way. Oh, yeah. Uh, so if you, again, if people want something like a goalpost, I think there, if you want to push it in the three, four, five minutes, then you start getting the more specific training. You know, is there some um, uh, validity for that with regards to brain injury? The answer is we don't know. Uh, Having done some experimentation on myself and with other people, I think there is um, value to that. But again, it depends on the total picture that you're seeing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Where do you stand on the like Wim Hof um, breathing and techniques? It's slightly off yeah. cue, but equally, so, he's talking about trying to get into that brainstem. Yeah. So the Wim Hof method. Uh, a lot of people, when they look at it, they go, isn't that kind of uh, diametrically opposed to, you know, Bateco, oxygen advantage, breathing? Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a, I tell people I'm a breathing agnostic. Basically, all systems will work for the right person. You just have to know how to use it. Uh, when you look at the Wim Hof method or any of the yogic methods that, are, that involve rapid breathing, they are intentional hyperventilation methods. Yeah. Now, intentional hyperventilation increases sympathetic activity. So it is another way, and I didn't mention this, but the, guess where the sympathetic nervous system begins? In the stem. In the, in the brainstem, right? Yeah. It's midbrain. The stress of it. Yeah. It's a stress breathing pattern, right? So it is another way to increase activity in the midbrain. However, in a uh, brain injured person who we're, again, thinking about decreased cerebral blood flow, yeah. The hyperventilation practice, unless it is followed by a long, long, long breath hold, may cause some issues with the cerebral blood flow. So I consider that it's not my primary go-to. Yeah. So hopefully that makes sense to everybody. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we're back to the midbrain. The next thing then that we add into the mix is we start to recognize that the midbrain controls eye movements. So the, you have two different cranial nerves there, cranial nerves that help your eyes come in and come in and down. They also do a lot of vertical eye movements. Uh, so normally what I, I will do after one or two weeks of breathing practice, we then begin to combine your breathing, whether that's a breath hold or a long exhale breathing pattern with eye movements. So now while you're doing Long exhale, you're doing pencil push-ups to the bridge of your nose, in and out to the tip of your nose. You're doing smooth pursuits up and down, saccades up and down. And these are all eye movements. I mean, I've got blogs on this. I've got products on this. You can look at that stuff. You can look it up on They're just eye movements, right? But we make sure that we understand that it's vertical eye movements and then anything that brings the eyes to the middle. So if, and, and this, again, when we look at brain injury, particularly the visual issues that are often long lasting, this is one of the most consistent problems. And inability to converge the eye metrically. Yeah. Uh, so you'll see, uh, if you go and read the literature on this, it's called near point of convergence. 
So for people that had a brain injury, very often they're like, yeah, as soon as I get my finger, you know, whatever this is, almost arm's length away from my eyes, the visual picture gets weird. I see double. And we really, for most of us, should be able to bring a target almost all the way to our nose without doubling occurring. Um, so working on we that. Should be, able to, should be able to get to our nose without the doubling occurring. For the most part, yeah. Uh, this is this is in part also, you know, you want to actually take a video of your eyes and make sure that they're moving symmetrically. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, that's uh, that thing that, again, I like to stack. We call that stacking with the breathing. And just remember, there's two versions, one to the top of your nose and one to the tip, right? And because those two different cranial nerves both live in that midbrain area. So uh, whenever we start working on this midbrain, we're going to eye movements and we're going to combine that with breathing so that's kind of step number one that we start to look at from the the rehab perspective uh, from there after the eye movements are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable then we want to start getting into maybe some of the vestibular system work now the vestibular system I, there's no way i in 15 minutes i can do just this yeah. but we're, we're here to go all right what are some basic ideas that i can use so the thing that we typically see post brain injury is a loss of competency in what's called the vestibulo-ocular reflex. The vestibulo-ocular reflex is I have something in front of me, I'm turning my head while I'm keeping my eyes focused on that object, yeah. or I'm nods, or I'm doing different diagonal directions. That's the VOR, all right? And that's, that's how you'll hear it termed. With people that have had a brain injury, they're dizzy, they're nauseous, they get motion sickness, they go out for a walk and even turning, they get a little bit off balance. This is the problem, the vestibular system. The vestibular system nuclei live in the part of the brainstem just below midbrain. They live in the pons. Uh, so now we need to start working on that part. So what I normally start to recommend initially is if you're really bad, you need to see someone that knows about the vestibular system so they can be very specific in figuring out what particular movement that you need and they show you how to do it so that yeah. but if you've had a brain injury three or four years ago you're pretty good but you want to start working on some improvements it's pretty easy to just start some basic VOR um, stimulation that you can do throughout the day okay. so um, yeah basic idea is you need that visual target usually about arm's length maybe a little further because you don't want your eyes converged right now you actually want your eyes to be relaxed. You want the visual target to be clear. So yes, you can use your finger, but if you use your finger, look at the fingernail and make sure that it's actually clear. If you don't, if it's not clear, you need to find something and hold it out there because the goal is, as you're going through these head movements, that the visual picture stays clear. So in a typical vestibular setting, they would have you do what they call yes, yes, no, no's, right? So yes, no. Uh, and these are small movements. They're not huge, so they're pretty small, and really we're going to focus on the quality of the movement and the tempo of the movement. So the quality is going to be governed by do I see it clearly or do I not see it clearly? Yeah. So people always ask me, they go, how did I And the answer is go as fast as you can and still see it clearly. So we normally will have people use a metronome, uh, so you aim for 120 to 180 beats per minute. Uh, that's your tempo with your metronome. So click, 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 yeah. or click, 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 click. Uh, and again, you just start adding in some sets of that to your day. 
Now, uh, just like we were doing with the visual system, I would recommend that you couple the head movements or the VOR movements with breathing. So do that on a breath hold and see if that increases some clarity for you. It's a really, really easy thing to do, particularly in the beginning. You do it seated so you feel safe, but then you need to do it standing in maybe a wide base stance. And then you make it harder by going into a narrow stance or a staggered stance, do it on one foot. And then once you can do all that, then you need to do it while you're walking forward and walking backward. Mm -hmm. So you can actually now put together a, um, a little training program that will really give your vestibular system a lot of stimulus. Uh, and that will also play a role in, in again, helping deal with a lot of the, the long issues that we see. Uh, it will alter sympathetic nervous system tone. Uh, so it will also help with some of the blood flow issues that we see to the cerebral or the blood flow. So there's a, just a huge collection of things that actually come into play just from those little examples. Yeah. Uh, let me, I'll stop, I guess, there at the moment, see if you guys have questions. Or if there's... Yeah, there was, um, there was one about the, um, the one about the breath hold. Um, I think this uh, um, was that 90 to 120 seconds after an exhale. The oxygen advantage stuff is always done after an exhale. Yeah. Um, if you can do 90 to 120 seconds after an exhale, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, I actually, it's, it's after the, uh, an inhale. So it's a, an inhale for that period. Over time, if you can work toward getting toward 90 seconds, full exhale, um, I don't know why you would need to do much more than that unless you are a free diver. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I, again, I would, I would focus first on post inhale and then work toward post exhale. Yeah. Um, do you understand the underlying mechanism for hormonal dysregulation? Uh, I might be able to see. Uh, is, is it direct injury? Yeah, direct injury to the pituitary gland. So the answer is we don't know. But <laughs> uh, if you don't know, no one knows. That's why I'm thinking. Yeah, because of where the pituitary gland lies, it is possible it's a direct injury, but the likelihood, honestly, is it's a secondary injury uh, based off a decreased amount of information from brainstem or other cortical areas sending inputs to the pituitary. Uh, in, in neurology, we talk about what's called dyskesis. Uh, basically, what that means is if I have a brain injury here, anything that that part of the brain feeds will show an injury one week, a few days to a week later. So in other words, I take a brain scan, I see a problem here. A week later, I'll see other spots starting to show up in the brain. They're usually from a network perspective, the area that was originally injured. So we think that's what's happening primarily with the pituitary rather than direct, uh, direct trauma. Yeah. So hopefully that answers that question. Um, uh, how is cerebral blood flow measured? Can it be used clinically as There's a couple different ways that you can measure it. Um, again, depends on the, the technology that you have available. So can it be clinically used? Yes. Um, unfortunately, this is such new information that right now it's not widespread. Uh, if you're interested in this on the science level, go on Google Scholar, type in cerebral blood flow assessments for traumatic brain injury, and you'll see kind of the research that's starting to show up. It, it is currently under, it's currently a big suggestion uh, because it would be super cool on a research level, but really on a practical level to be able to document for people. This is where the cerebral blood flow is currently. As we do these exercises and drills, this is what we're beginning to see. 
Um, so yes, it's possible. It just right now it's not widespread. Um, I can check if there's a few of these. I just wanted to um, just try to summarize um, a couple of things that he said a bit like the importance. So something that came across to me that was new around that, like less blood flow going um, to the brain. And then some of those, like the breath holding, the convergence, as well as the, um, what, you got, oscular, what was the uh, vestibular? Vestibular ocular reflex. Ocular reflex. Yeah, that those things are helping like stimulate and by stimulating drive some blood flow back to that mid that brainstem. Is that on the right lines? Yeah. yeah. And I think that one of the, uh, I guess the question that I would have is these little drills, like I get, like I love the, when we do, I've been on your course and I've got, you know, you said there's a ton of stuff on your blog, um, lots on uh, videos that people can follow and, and stuff. There's so much there. And a lot of the time, one of the things I love about it and really get like excited about is that they seem, they don't seem like overly difficult for me to like put into practice. But I think there'll be, a, there's a stumbling block and I can't believe that I'd be the only person is that I go, right, I know I need to do some of these eye drills. Mm -hmm. But it like, it seems to, even though it's not a difficult thing to do, on my, the actual getting it, getting it done, the actual following through and making it part of, um, I guess like part of my training or part of my habits um, is, a, is a massive stumbling block. And we have those types of things in, in all areas. I think you've talked before about behavior change and reading um, James Clear's book, Atomic, Atomic Habits. Mm -hmm. But have you got any, is there any, um, is that something you've come across and is that, have you got any sort of like quick little <laughs> wins for people? Like how do we make sure that we do the things that Dr. Cobb's telling us to do? <laughs> Have I come across it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every day. <laughs> Every single day of my entire working life, I come across the difficulty with behavior change. Um, so this is, this is very true in that a lot of times the hard work that we need to do is not terribly exciting, right? It doesn't feel like if you're starting to do, sit there and do pencil push-ups or you're doing walking DORs, because it doesn't feel like, uh, let's say, you know, I'm a tennis player, you may not get the same excitement of doing from doing that drill that you do from getting hitting a great forehand or being able to do your first muscle up or whatever it is you care about. Yeah. So it, this, it, it falls into the same realm of dietary changes and a lot of other good habits. So my, my starting point, honestly, for most people is to tell them, number one, you're normal. This happens to everybody. Number two, don't blame yourself. Number three, particularly for brain injury people, the first problem is memory. Uh, when it comes to behavior change, very often as professionals, we get super frustrated with people that don't do their exercises and don't do their drills. But what I always ask our students in courses, I go, well, how often do you remind them? And they'll say, well, every time I see them, I'll ask them, well, did you do your, did you do your, and I'm like, that, that kind of makes sense, but think about your own personal life. How many times have you woken up in the morning going, today is a day. Today, today I'm going to do this. Today is a day I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to start doing this new habit. And then your day kicks off and everything goes to hell for whatever reason. And it's nine o'clock or 10 o'clock at night. You're exhausted. You're thinking, okay, I'm going to go to bed. It's only at that moment that you remember the thing that was so important to you when you woke up at o'clock in the morning. So I tell people that a lot of our behavior change failures are faults of memory more than faults of motivation or desire. 
Yeah. So if you can get past that, then you start to have solutions available to you. For our clients, particularly people that have had brain injury, we, use, we make of memory triggers. And what I mean by that is I will ask them to set an alarm uh, off every hour on the hour. And we attach something to that alarm. I use a lot of visual things. Years ago when I was I, uh, first kind of starting in the behavior change world with clients, I used a lot of on computer screens. I, I had people go out and buy those little colored office dots. Yeah. And have them put it on the screen. And I would go, every time you see that blue dot, you do X. Yeah. So the, the struggle often, I think, particularly for athletic people, is we feel like 30 seconds of work isn't going to get anything done. That if it's not hard, if it's not effortful, that if I'm spending 45 minutes at it, then I why start. And that's kind of a ridiculous idea, but I understand it. We call it the work ethic problem, right? You've been successful in a lot of things in your life and you feel like you were successful because you worked so hard at it. Uh, well, the fact is you work consistently at it. Yeah. And so we're always trying to get people back into that idea of figure out a way to at least get started. Because usually if you can do five or 10 seconds, you'll wind up doing a minute. And that accumulates over time. So yeah, that's my, you know, obviously I have an entire course on behavior, yeah. but in the real world, the most practical thing that you can start off with is providing regular memory triggers, either through equipment, set it up in front of them so they see it every time they sit down, use colors, use some kind of reminder. Uh, if you're a movement professional and you work with clients all the time, figure out a text service that will allow you to send automated text to them four or five times a day. Hey, I'm watching you. You're doing your drills or whatever. <laughs> whatever you yeah. So that, uh, you, again, they're getting that regular. They don't want to irritate you. You don't want to fail yourself, right? You know these things are for you. You know that you need to do them. So, again, bias it toward I don't have a system or an environment in place yet that encourages me and reminds me to do the things that I need to do. Yeah. Uh, you can, if you can focus on it that way, I think it's a lot less cumbersome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lizzie uh, is asked, can you do eye training too much? And I'd yeah. like to just add... Can you? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's like anything else. So think about it this way. Let's say I had a, a brain injury three months ago, and I do one pencil push-up, and I want to vomit. Yeah. That's too much. So that means we have to regress it. We have to maybe decrease the speed, decrease the range, or look at different exercises. The visual system, the vestibular system, are just like your musculoskeletal. Can you do too much musculoskeletal work? You get sore, tired, fatigued, injured? Yeah. So how, because um, something I think might help with, you know, talk about behavior change. If I um, am doing some of these uh, eye drills and I start to notice improvements in certain things, mm -hmm. then I always find that encouraging to carry on doing them. If, I guess whether someone's, whether someone's had a head injury where they haven't, there's just something that they need to work on, how what sort of differences are people going to be able to potentially notice and how long might that take? So uh, certainly with the visual system, one of the easy things to, to think about is how long can you read or be in front of the screen without feeling eye fatigue? The issue is that if you don't track it, you don't know because people go, well, my will get tired. But I say, well, if they got tired at 30 minutes as opposed to 20 minutes, guess what? That's a, that's a big improvement. So you have to look for things that are part of your daily life. So usually you'll see improvements in eye fatigue, your ability to focus for prolonged periods, your visual acuity may improve. 
Um, another thing that a lot of people will find is if they do enough visual and vestibular work, a lot of their chronic neck, shoulder, and back stiffness will begin to improve. Yeah. So you want to be trying to attach and look for, all right, when I do this kind of visual work, what happens in the rest of my body? Uh, again, there's, there's a ton to that, but you, you know, you have to look for these, right? And that's, I think that's one of the biggest issues with a lot of training is we don't take the time to figure out, well, I've been doing this for a year. What has changed? If you didn't track anything to begin with, you still feel like you, <laughs> right? So you need to figure out uh, a few things that bother you and notice they are improving. One of the issues that you'll figure out quickly that will often improve with breathing is you'll start sleeping. But you know that you're sleeping better until you actually have a moment to think about, well, how do I sleep on a regular basis? Or how often do I wake up? Am I fatigued when I wake up? Uh, brain fog is another thing. How tired do I mentally feel throughout the day? Does that change? So, uh, again, that would be based off your own history and thinking about your buckets. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point, actually, to actually <laughs> people, how aware are we, are we of how we actually feel so that then you can make those um, assessments there's just there's there's a few questions about breathing and, and one um side said about um, working the effort basic foundation of breathing the effects on the body and any recommendations obviously you've got your breathing um the breathing gym program online um i've i've got that um i've worked through it it's uh, yeah that's a fantastic resource um i'm assuming you've probably got blogs and things on it on your on your website as well yeah um we mentioned the oxygen advantage that's a great book um i've done the um as i said i've done the advanced instructor training for that which is yeah fantastic resource and also the james nestor's book breath um very good is a very good one uh, don't have you got any others um i think those are actually really good places to start like i said because i i believe that we need to see every side of it uh, Wim Hof's new book is actually, I think, reasonable, interesting to look at, uh, the Wim Hof method. Uh, like I said, I normally put that in the way that I work with people as a secondary tool yeah. um, later on. But I think everything that you mentioned, are they're really great places to start. If you are a therapist or you're kind of in the medical world, um, there is a book on breathing pattern dysfunction by Leon, Leon Chetow, osteopath. Uh, uh, it's a little bit old at this point, but again, from a musculoskeletal perspective, if you want to dig into that, I think that's that's a pretty good one. Yeah. Oh, that was another one from breathing, breathing panels. We had um, she's an American. Um, she works a lot in the think in the NFL and maybe NHL. Um, Dana Santos. Um, mm -hmm. We had her um, on the podcast. She's got a she's got a pro. She's a little bit more into like the mechanics, how it affects them, like movement. Um, right. She's got some good resources as well. Um, We've done uh, there's a there's a live if we've done an Instagram live with her before, so there's that available. There's someone asking about um, some of the coloured glasses or screens and stuff. We did an Instagram live with Dr. Cobb. Um, maybe yeah. was it about a month ago, but that's that's on. If people can watch that one back. Um. Uh, very quickly, coloured glasses can be helpful. Yes. Uh, what colour? You have to test. That's the basic answer. Uh, reds, blues, greens, ambers. Uh, and dark grays are the five colors that I probably test the most. Uh, really cool study a couple of years ago looking at athletes concussed, and they basically were looking at photophobia, like light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, and they just left the athletes. They said, hey, try colors, find the one that you like the best. Uh, and that worked out well. So their, the recommendation was post head injury, do test colors, 
choose the color that makes you feel the best decreases the amount of stress that you're feeling visually. Uh, so yes, they can be helpful. There's a lot more to it than that from our perspective, but that's a, a easy, fast answer. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much again for your time. Like, as someone, someone's actually put on your uh, your website for you in, in the comments. But yeah, if you don't follow, um, you know, if you're one of our followers and you don't follow um, Z Health Performance um, and Dr. Cobb, make sure you head over there. There's like fantastic um, bit information he put out on on in, just literally just on Instagram, but also your blog. Um, you know, get signed up to the blog because you then you're going to get a little email in, which is going to be. It's always just a little nugget of like information that yeah if, you, if you're just interested at all in like health fitness wellness improving how your body works as we said right at the beginning like the brain dictates that and you know you guys are as i've seen the the experts i don't think there's anyone else in that is is in the same ballpark as, as you so um yeah can't recommend your stuff um highly enough so um yeah thank you so much for your time again um, I really hope that these things that you've talked about from a rehab point of view for people get into the mainstream of advice, you know, once someone does, rather than just, you know, turn the lights off and sit in a dark room, that's, that was, a, you know, trying not to stimulate yourself. Because that's that was the thing, like, with the head injury, guys, it was very much like trying to stimulate the brain, whereas you're coming at it from a point of view of going, we know which parts we actually do want to to try and help with that recovery process. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish, I, wish I met you my, seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, my hope is that things will improve. I, I think that, again, researchers all, all over the world are trying to make this better for people. We're learning a lot more, and thankfully, we're slowly getting people away from the idea that rest is the answer. Uh, for uh, the human organism, appropriate rest is useful, but at some point, we have to figure out how to stimulate the, the body and brain to get back into regular activity. So uh, as I said, when we got started, it's a kind of a complicated you know, issue. If you've experienced TBIs or your or whatever friend's family, make sure you consult with someone that kind of knows what's going on and hopefully the information we provided in here will at least give you a, uh, a foundation to ask, ask good questions. Yeah. Uh, and certainly if you're far removed from your own injury, some of the drills and exercises we mentioned are great places to start. Uh, Obviously, it's a complex field, and there's so many different variables. But for the most part, these are these are really high payoff things that we discussed today. Yeah. So, Jim, if someone wanted to work with like a, a Z Health practitioner, if they visit your website, is it easy to find out how, where they could, you know, if they wanted to work directly with somebody? Absolutely. We have on our website we have a find a trainer uh, section. So we have about a, you know, we have about four thousand, five thousand practitioners. About a thousand on the on the website that, that want their information out there. Yeah. Many online, so you can certainly go on there. Uh, my general recommendation would be if you've had a traumatic brain injury and it's fairly significant, uh, you would want to work with one of our uh, students that has gone through uh, our course called Structure, and you can actually search by courses they've attended on the on that. Uh, the Structure course is our neurology course. Uh, so that's a, that one, I, I think sets them up really well to, to deal with more complex issues. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Yep. My pleasure. Well, thank you very much. I hope you, uh, get to enjoy some time off over Christmas. Switch the break. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Hope you guys do as well. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Take thank care. You all.